This is the Build Our Future podcast. We shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. A window into the past, present, and future of the construction industry. We have still a lot of unlocked doors. Clarity with design, craftsmanship with the build. There's still a lot to find out and do and invent. Collaboration for our future. You know, I don't think it's the end of the invention. The Build Our Future podcast with Raul Faria. Let's build. Begins now. Sustainability be it design or construction. We're going to navigate this supposed taboo word today with Paul Dasset in an attempt to put some myths to bed once and for all. Paul, I've actually been following you and Sustainable on LinkedIn, Instagram for quite a while. And I'm just so fascinated by something that, that keeps popping up with you in your feed. It's this concept of the triple bottom line and your three Ps. Can you tell me some more about it and what it actually means, not just in a general sense, but also what it means to you? Okay, thanks, Raul. It's a pleasure to be here today chatting with you and being able to put a voice to your name. So thanks for this. I came at the world of sustainability starting out as a fairly conventional architect working in the field and being frustrated by what I saw around me. I didn't like how wasteful architecture is when it's generally practiced. And I figured that there could be a better way to do this. And I'd always had a very strong interest in sustainability that was really instilled in me by my parents. And so in starting to figure out what I was going to do, now this is going back 10, 11 years ago, when I was figuring out what I was going to do with the next chapter of my architectural life, I looked at, okay, what are the things about this industry that I want to do something about? What do I want to change? Where do I want to pull some levers? And I figured that sustainability was one that I could really make a difference. And so I started a company called Sustainable. It was quite astonishing that a word like that was so freely available 10, 11 years ago. And we hung out a shingle with that name. And it was certainly a gamble at the time to see if there would be enough clients come along that they're looking for sustainability. And lo and behold, here we are 11 years later. So I think that's proof that there were enough clients who were looking for sustainability. That's how we got to where we are now. Well, that's pretty fantastic. It's always interesting to hear where people started out. Even me, when I started my general contracting company, I wanted to do it differently, not necessarily in a, in a green way, but we all know the, how would you put it lightly, the reputation that general contractors have. Indeed. Um, so when I first started, I had various stops that I learned a lot from them and things I wanted to do, but more importantly, things I didn't want to do. So for me, I looked at three C's, which are by clarity, collaboration, and craftsmanship, because not too dissimilar from your three P's in your context, but really the goal is no one's winning or losing here. Right. You know what I mean? It does not imply somebody's won, somebody's lost. We're all here to make some money, have a good product, put our stamp on it. And all we can do is talk and collaborate together, right? So I loved your concept of the three P's. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. Sure, I'd love to. So the three P's that you're asking me about are people, planet, and prosperity. And I think that the one that touches upon how you were looking at doing business is the prosperity one. Very often when people say those three Ps, what they say is people, planet, and profit. And I always had a problem 
with the word prophet. Prophet to me implies that a very few people win and a lot of people lose. That's the way our society has created. Conditioned our minds. Conditioned us. Yeah, that's, that's, right. that's the way we operate. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, well, prosperity is a much better word because prosperity really touches on that there's enough for all. We can all have what we need. We don't need to hoard it. And so there, there's kind of a connection between those three Ps. They form a triangle. They all connect together. So prosperity, rather than, rather than profit, prosperity is enough for all the sharing, which sort of has a concept of equity built into it, which takes us right back to the people corner of this triangle. So the people part really talks about social equity. And I think that one of the very strong things that this COVID pandemic has shown us is how our business as usual society does not allow for equity. We're seeing that all over. It will be interesting to see what happens when we do return back to work when we're allowed to, to see if people change. Like this COVID crisis has drawn back the curtain. We've been able to see behind the curtain. And will we unsee is going to be the question. Yeah, it's been pretty fantastic. I'm sure we've seen those images over China, the pollution. I wonder those same things. And even talking with my friends, we all say, we're creatures of habit by nature, human beings. Will we go back or are we creating new habits now? Or are enough of us will keep those habits after this and no one really knows, right? Well, let's hope that we keep some of the good habits that we're learning, which of course then takes us exactly to the third P, to planet, which speaks about environmental responsibility. So now we have seen clean air over Beijing. We've seen clean air over Los Angeles. We've seen clear waters in the canals of Venice. I mean, I don't think that's less pollution. I just think that the sediment has settled down to the bottom because there's less <laughs> boats going around. But anyway, whatever the reason, we have seen clear water in the canals of Venice. That is something. There are people living in northern India who can see the Himalayas for the first time in their lives. 200 kilometers away, right? These are remarkable things. We take that for granted sometimes over here, but in, like we think Toronto is dense. Yeah. Go over to India or go over to China, and then you'll really see what a dense population is all about. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And another thing that's being linked together, of course, is that the places where the virus is, is affecting most people is in the places with the greatest air pollution. And scientists are now starting to make a link there. So in the coming weeks, we'll see whether there are stronger linkages there or whether it's just a theory that doesn't really hold. But if it does hold, then there's yet another piece of the curtain that we've drawn back. It's like, wow, this air pollution actually does have negative consequences. But it's funny, everyone talks about caring about the environment or in some way, shape or form. But Unlike yourself, most people really tend to gravitate towards it or really speak up for it when it directly impacts them as it's happening right now, right? Like now when the, you know, you can walk down the street and it's, hey, you know what? You don't necessarily smell the fumes of trucks or this, or it adds a completely different sort of change. And I'm just really curious, like being an architect, I mean, before sustainable, what changed? What changed your mindset? Was it just like a, a light bulb one day, an epiphany one day? Or was it just something you were thinking about and trying to formulate, okay, how do I make this 
business sustainable for mm-hmm. sustainable. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, indeed. And prior to 2009, when I started sustainable, in the years leading up to that, I was just getting more and more frustrated working in the industry. And I couldn't quite figure out what the source of that frustration was. And I've figured it out since that really I was working in a way that the work I was doing was not aligned with my personal values. And that was starting to have a physical, an emotional, and a mental toll on me. In fact, it came to a head at home one day when my partner said to me that something was going to change. This was my wake-up call. I was told that I was a pretty miserable human being to live with, and either I was going to change my work and how I approached every day of life, or I was going to find a new domestic partner. <laughs> okay. Well, there's decisions, a wake-up decisions. Decision, wake call decisions, for you. Decisions, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, maybe I'll look into this. I'm going to change one of these two things. Which one do I want to change? So I decided to change the one that was making me miserable. Fair enough. (laughs) But at the time, you don't know which one was making you miserable? Uh, No, I (laughs) I knew. (laughs) (laughs) I was the one who was making my partner miserable. So I was the catalyst in all of that. So So initially, I guess we'll call it your previous life. Were you exposed to any lead projects? Because I remember when I was working at the time, lead was all the rage in the mid to late 2000s. It was, you know, there was silver, platinum, and I don't hear of too many more lead buildings being built anymore. But did that start making you thinking about? Because I know I was involved with a couple of lead projects and I thought it was, the concept was good, but there was so much paper, like not just paperwork, but paper that we had to submit in order to get the accreditation that I was kind of like, what's the point? You know what I mean? Like I was questioning things at the time. That's an interesting way to look at it. You know, how many trees did I have to kill to get this lead certification? (laughs) Well, now it's much easier with the rise of technology and moving. But back then, you know, I was like, "Eh, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, there are definitely those dichotomies when you look at things. But Yeah, in the early 2000s, the idea of lead projects and the fact that we were working on lead projects, that is a good part of what sparked this idea in my mind that there could be a business that was focusing on sustainable architecture. And like in the very early parts of my career, clients came in and they asked for projects to be on time and on budget. That's all they cared about. Oh, man, the number of websites you see on time and on budget, am I right? (laughs) Indeed. And as time went on and into the 2000s, clients would come in and they would ask for their projects to be on time and on budget, and there'd be a long pause. And they'd say, and if it can be sustainable, okay. And over time, that sustainability piece got stronger until just before I left my previous life, Clients were actually asking for sustainability first, and then a pause, and then on time and on budget. And that was the real watershed moment where I thought, okay, there's something brewing here that I think is a wave that I can ride. Not that I'm you know, just a jump on the bandwagon kind of guy, but that's something that aligns with my values, that I think I can build a business around this idea that's not going to make me miserable. And well, 11 years later, I'm still here. So I think it's worked. 
did you find the mentality changed? Because what, what I mean is in terms of originally would they ask for this is what I want on time on budget and what's the separate cost for sustainability? And then, <laughs> and then now it's, you know what, I want to make it sustainable. And what am I looking at? Mm-hmm. I think it's the phrasing of the question sometimes that changes the, the idea, right? Yeah. 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 It's the order they put those two priorities that makes the difference. So I've definitely noticed the shift. And what's also interesting is that in the 11 years that sustainable has been around, of course, I've been evolving and developing and I think getting more sustainable as time goes on, getting better at doing the craft that I do. And I suppose always I feel that other practitioners, other architects and even clients aren't moving as fast as I want them to. I suppose that I'm just that little bit further ahead on the learning curve. And so I think that's probably a good thing. If it ever turned out that I started to lag behind and others caught up with me on the learning curve, that should be another wake-up call. That should be a, you know, get my butt in gear and keep learning. So do you and your team, do you collaborate with other architectural firms or interior design firms to kind of, because, you know, I've not really noticed or found any one that really specializes in this. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and that's definitely something that we do and we would like to do more of. I think that that's a place where we could definitely add value to other firms who may not have the bench strength of sustainability that we have, but when they have a project that's requiring sustainability or that they want to put sustainability into, and I actually find those two phrases very hard to say because I think Every project should be sustainable. It should just be baked right into the DNA, but that's another soapbox to get on. But I think that we definitely can add value to other firms and help them out to be more sustainable and help them to learn, like accelerate their path along the learning curve. So question, sustainable, when you say sustainable, what is it that you mean by sustainable? Because there are a lot of people that have different ideas of what sustainable means. It could be net zero, net zero energy, net zero carbon. Oh, I'm only using whatever products. So what does it mean to you and what's the foundation? Very interesting question you asked there because the meaning of the word sustainable does keep evolving, even for me. It's not a static definition. As I learn more, as I see more that is possible, the definition of the word keeps evolving. So In its current state, it definitely embodies the triple bottom line that we talked about, those three Ps of people, planet, and prosperity. It's also tending towards net zero carbon. And this is zero carbon throughout the life of a building, right from the extraction of resources to make the materials that need to be transported to the site, that need to be assembled to make a building, and then ultimately the operation of the building. Where my current vector is pointing is towards zero carbon in that entire chain. I haven't achieved it yet on any projects, but each project we do keeps vectoring closer and closer to that. I recently, about a month ago, I got linked to this company in India, in Bombay, and very, a very, very interesting concept. So they actually have gone to a refinery, have used their air pollution, refined it into carbon particles, and now that have come up with a carbon tile, varying shapes and forms you can use in the wall, on the floor, 
and now they're working on other things. And I found that so fascinating. Have you found many applications where we could potentially use something like this? Definitely. I've heard of it and and I've heard of others. There's also a company in San Francisco that is doing similar things and capturing carbon and putting it into concrete so that rather than concrete being such an emitter of carbon, that it can actually be used to sequester carbon. And those are all technologies that are evolving. And I think that they should all be encouraged and we should throw resources at them and help them out. But in my practice, and especially being here in Canada, we go to something which is a technology which is much more tried and true, which does not emit carbon through its manufacture, a little bit through its transportation and things, but it also sequesters carbon. And Mother Nature has been developing this since the beginning of time. Is it wood? Um, wood? It's wood. wood. There you go. It's, <laughs> it's wood. Really as, as simple, simple as, as wood, that. right? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, why do you have to get really complex when the answer is, you know, right around you and is so simple? So uh, we haven't yet had the opportunity to use some of these new technologies, but we certainly in our office, we use a lot of wood and we try to decrease the amount of concrete or brick that we use. What you're talking about, you know what I find? It's almost you're trying to change mindsets, right? And that takes time. But do they actually teach anything like this in architectural school or engineering school? I'm a civil engineer by education. And we would thought about LVLs and designing that, but nothing out of the box, like you said, tried, tested and true. But this is in a completely different context. Do you know if they are teaching some kind of sustainable courses or do you think they should? They definitely should. No question about that. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. Are they? Well, there's a, there's a very loaded question. I think if you asked any school of architecture and probably of engineering, if they teach sustainability, they will all say yes. The same as if you ask anybody on the street, well, you can't do that right now, but talking to people, if you ask anybody if they would support harming the planet, there's probably not a person who's going to say they would. However, saying and doing are two very different things. So in my experience with schools of architecture is that they really do not have robust sustainability mindsets, underpinnings to their courses. I do some part-time teaching at Ryerson University in their school of architecture. And I made it clear that I would only participate when I get the opportunity to teach sustainability. And ideally for me, because Ryerson just has this amazing opportunity where they have a school of architecture and within the school of architecture, they have a school of building science. Well, now there are two people, you know, architects and building scientists who should be working side by side all the time. And I had the privilege of being able to convince one of the building science professors last winter that we could do a co-course together. So her 15 students and my 15 students came together as a class of 30 and we paired them all up so that a building scientist was working with an architect and they had to design a project together. And both sides learned a lot from that. And I think that when those students graduate, I think the architecture students are going to have a better understanding of the value of a building scientist and what a building scientist can bring to their project and how they can make it so much better. But also building scientists are learning how to talk to architects. 
because they do kind of talk two different languages. You're from civil engineering, I'm from architecture. We know that engineers and architects speak somewhat different languages. So we have to learn to talk together. And now I'm a contractor, so. <laughs> <laughs> yet, so yet another language. <laughs> yet, yet another language to learn, right? So just out of curiosity, the concept of green building technologies, people talk about it all the time. And, you know, when I talk to a lot of my friends, for whatever reason, they seem to think that it has to do with smart homes, like a Nest thermostat. It's not necessarily talking about, you know, changing the kind of insulation you have or not going with vinyl door, like little things like that. They always seem to think it has to do with some sort of technology gadget that you can control on your phone. And that's a smart building technology. Do you think the narrative has been pumped a certain way for commercial purposes or? Oh yeah. Those people who make Nest thermostats and those things, you know, they have big marketing budgets. I gave a lecture a few years ago now at the U of T School of Architecture and the title of my lecture was Dumb is the New Smart. And it was really a send up of all these smart technologies for smart homes and things like that. And I just debunked all of that and said, if we get the building envelope right, you know, get it well air sealed, get it well insulated, put some managed ventilation in there, then you don't need all this tech. It's really going to the concept of passive house where Things are well air sealed, they're well insulated, they have managed ventilation, they have openings, windows on sides of the building where they can get some solar gain benefit and less windows on the sides that don't get the solar gain benefit. It's just thinking like that. And then you don't need all this technology to really compensate for poor design decisions. So when you're working on new buildings, what I find is that there's no reason to rely on all the technology, which is sort of expensive and more moving parts and usually involves a lot of carbon. There's no point in relying on all those things when you can make better design decisions from the beginning. Now, if we're talking about retrofitting existing buildings, well then, okay, then some of the technology can come into play because you can't change as many things about the building envelope as you could before it existed. Now it already exists. It has some characteristics. So the tech has a, has a part to play. But in the design of new buildings, I like to use that technology or you know, use technology in the form of those building scientists that we talked about before. Use those building scientists and all their computer modeling skills. Use the technology up front in the design process so that we don't need to use it later on. So we use it for a short period of time up front and then we don't need to use that technology every day for the life of the building. I feel the same way. We had to, about four years ago, we had to insulate our attic and we were looking at going with this, the spray foam. And <laughs> I owe a lot. <laughs> no, no, I just, no, because, you know, at that point I was, I was interested in it, but I mean, I'm an engineer architect. I mean, we have similar mindsets generally, like when we go in for something, we go full on, right? Yeah. And I was going back and forth on how much green building in my terms, not society's terms. You know, I did research. <laughs> I just did research. How safe is this? How good is this for the environment? And we decided not to go with it. But I hear it on these radio stations pumping, go spray foam, go spray foam. What other options out there could people have? on a day-to-day -day kind of thing. They're not going to build a brand new home, let's just say, and they're going to do a little reno, maybe a washroom and an existing exterior wall. 
And you know what? They want to start there. Like you said, a retrofit. They want to start there. What would some people look at? Aside from calling you to design it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, aside from the obvious, yeah. <laughs> so, and again, this is, as I said earlier, I'm on a cycle of learning and learn new things all the time. So once upon a time in the early days of sustainable, I thought that spray foam was perfectly fine. I have since learned, and we knew that it had a bunch of petrochemicals in it and things like that, but there were these spray foams that used soy base and some used sugar as a base and things like that. So we thought, oh, you know, these are natural, so these are better. I've since learned how small a percentage the components of soy or sugar are. So. They don't really make that much difference. Yeah, you see the um, disclaimer at the bottom contains, yeah. but it's not like a food packaging where they give you the percentages. Yeah, give, right? you, give it an order. No, they, 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 right. they, they put that right up top. Right like up top. Soy, based, soy based foam. It's like 3% soy. Um, and so what I've learned about spray foam, kind of its negative side, is its carbon footprint. That's its real negative side. The carcinogenic nature of it when it's off gassing and things like that is not a good side either. But what we can look at and understand is, you know, what is the carbon footprint of different materials? So spray foam is at one end of the carbon footprint and not the good end. And then you move through other products that we know of like rock wool. And rock wool is rocks spun into wool, as the name would imply, which makes an insulation. Obviously, it takes quite a bit of energy which is usually a fossil fuel energy, carbon-based. takes a lot of energy to spin rocks into wool. You can just imagine that process. <laughs> it's like a giant cotton candy machine at the fair, but a really big one. And you know, then we move through fiberglass, which everybody is familiar with. And then we get to cellulose, which is plant-based fibers, and even wood fiber for rigid insulation, cellulose for a blown-in insulation, and wood fiber for rigid insulation. And those things are, of course, at the complete opposite carbon footprint end from where spray foam was. So as much as we can tend towards that end, tend towards the cellulose and the wood fiber, and again, hey, we're living here in Canada, we have a tremendous amount of agricultural waste corn stalks and wheat stalks and all that stuff that comes off the farmlands that is not the food we eat, it's just the agricultural waste product. Well, all of that can go into making cellulose. We have a lot of forests in Canada here, so we have a lot of possibility of, of making wood fiber insulation. We even look at the industries that we used to have. We had one of the largest wood industries in the world. We probably still do, but in the early days, about 100 years ago, the whole industry in Canada was divided. The Western part of the industry, Western Canada part of the industry, was making timber products, structural lumber, essentially, whereas Eastern Canada was making pulp and paper to feed the voracious newspaper industry around the world. And of course, now, there's not as much of a newspaper industry as there used to be. And many pulp and paper plants in Eastern Canada have shut down. The timber industry in the Western Canada is still doing fine, but in Eastern Canada, most of the pulp and paper is shut down. And I look at those at a possibility there of 
could we reopen those pulp and paper mills? And rather than making paper, could we make wood fiber insulation? Is the process similar? Like, you know, you hack up the trees into small, small bits and in making pulp and paper, you add a lot of water and you make a slurry out of it and then you press it real thin. Well, it strikes me, and I haven't looked far enough into it. This is kind of a half-baked theory at the moment, but I haven't looked far enough into it. But I think that making wood fiber insulation is a few steps short of making paper. And maybe that's something we should look into. But you know what? That's interesting. But given all the different municipalities and codes and stuff like that, some sort of a testing facility for something like this to create the R values that are accept, you know, for different wall types and stuff, I would still have to either be built or find something close by who would actually be able to properly test them. I mean, we all know for whatever reason, our industry, even though I enjoy being in the industry, we are so slow to change and adapt with the times. But you get in a self-driving car and everyone wants to jump on the bandwagon, right? You get an electric car. Nobody wants to know how those batteries. Nope. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but people want to jump on board with that. So I wonder how, like, do you get a sense that it's been challenging to, I guess, spread the concept of this kind of design style, this kind of living style? Actually, it's more of a lifestyle than anything else, right? It's not really a design style, it's yeah. more of a lifestyle. It's definitely a lifestyle. And a lot of people believe that to go sustainable, they're believing old myths. They're believing that to go sustainable, you have to do without, you have to have less, you have to live with less. And that's not true at all. Fortunately, the clients who come to us because of our name, they don't need a lot of convincing. You know, they've come to us because they know that that's what they want. So I think that looking back, the stroke of genius that I certainly did not realize was a stroke of genius at the time was with the name self-selecting clients so that I don't have to go through the convincing stage anymore. Yeah. And that's, that's more than half the battle normally. Exactly. So I'm really happy that I cut out that half of the battle. What it does give me though, is now I've got all sorts of projects from clients over 11 years that I can point to. And if somebody does have a myth that needs busting, I can call up any one of those clients over the 11 years and say, okay, I've got Jim here who wants to come and see your house, wants to talk to you, to hear it from you because you're living in it, how great it is. And so past clients are my greatest sales force. I can get them to bust any myth out there that people have. The name doesn't hurt either, does it? No. <laughs> exactly. And you guys exactly. As, a, as a company, as a team, got the new certification, the Certified B Corporation. When did you guys get that? That's a big, I've not seen too many, if any, contractors out there that, that even have one. There's one contractor that I know of, and but we're the first architecture firm in Canada to be certified at B Corp and probably the fifth in North America. So I think there were four in the United States before us. So we aren't a big family, but I hope we're a growing family. So we gained our certification about this time last year. So I think we've had it for about a year now. And so spring of 2019, but that was after a three-year process of application. It is not easy certification to get. So what the B Corp 
does. The, at foundation, they talk about doing business for good, or as I like to refer to them, the Bureau of Business for Better. You know, it's going to turn that Better Business Bureau thing on its head. A little different spin. Yeah. The Bureau of Business for Better. That's what I refer to our club as. So we go about doing our business and B Corps are every kind of business you can imagine. Body shop, cosmetics and lotions and shampoos and stuff. Those people, they're a B Corp. Patagonia, the clothing and outdoor outdoor wear company is a B Corp. You know, us as architects, we're B Corp. So every industry you can imagine can be a B Corp. It's just that we are held to the highest environmental and social standards. The financial standards are our business to take care of. You know, that's like, if you don't take care of your finances, you're not going to be a business. So that'll take care of itself. That's a self-sorting thing. But in order to be a B Corp, we have to uh, demonstrate to them that we uphold the highest environmental and social standards. And what is interesting is that they, and why it took so long to get certified, is that they have a team who digs into all of the claims that we're making. So we can make all sorts of claims as architects who practice sustainability and practice the triple bottom line of people, planet, and prosperity, and those things. And we say, right, you know, so we are upholding these strong environmental and social values. Well, the certification team digs into all of that, and they're like investigative reporters. They try and... Smell the and BS a mile away. <laughs> They can smell BS a mile away. Exactly. And for us in our little firm, we were a firm of, you know, a dozen or so people at the time. And the challenge for us, you know, we don't have an HR department and things like that. So we had all these policies, these HR policies that were never written down, that were sort of loosely held together in my brain when I thought about them at all. And in order to become certified, we not only had to write them down, we had to make them better than we had imagined them. And then the real hard part comes, of course, after certification, we now have to live up to all those promises daily. Like we have to live out those values every day. And oh boy, they hold you to some standards, which is all great. Because if we- So they do audit you yes, on an ongoing basis as well? Every three years, we have to recertify. And when you first certify, you're given points out of possible, oh, I totally forget, but maybe let's say 200 points. Out of a possible 200 points, you're given a certain number and there's a threshold. You have to get above a certain number. And I think the number was like 80. But in that first three years, you have to send back to them your roadmap to improvement. So how are you going to get better over the next three years. Not just about maintaining the status quo. It's all about oh, improvement. Yeah. And then when you recertify three years later, you have to demonstrate that you have achieved those improvements. So are you going to set the bar high? You just set the bar <laughs> higher. Yeah, really. So, so you, you have to be strategic about this, right? <laughs> what can I possibly achieve here? It's an interesting new course to be on, this course of being a B Corp and carrying that banner high. I'm sure the whole team, pool of architects and everyone on the team with Sustainable, I mean, they're completely all in on this, obviously, because without them, it's not going to work as absolutely, well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody has to be all in on this. And I think that even more than myself, I think the other people on the team are so proud to be able to say that they are a B Corp. That really sets them apart from their classmates and their peers. 
So when they join your team, I'm a big believer that you make a mistake once, okay, no problem. Second, and then third, I'm like, all right, now, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. By the third, the baseball rules have to come to play. It's like, okay, you get four balls, but you only get three strikes. Three right? strikes. That's, okay, yeah. that's exa <laughs> exactly right. So there are definitely those challenges with onboarding people, but our interview process is rigorous as it needs to be as part of our B Corp status. And, you know, there are lots of people who want to come and work for Sustainable because we, although we are a relatively small firm, we have a much bigger name on the street than our size. I guess what's the expression? We're punching well above our weight. And so that means that a lot of people look to us and they think, oh, that would be a nice place to work. So we get lots of applications. We're not often looking for people. And so we get to know people very well before they get hired. We know that they're a good fit with the team. They get to know the whole team usually before they're hired. With a number of people, we've brought them on on a task basis. Like we have, we have some fun thing that needs to be done. Like in the past, we have built birdhouses. We have built bee hotels that have been distributed amongst Fairmont hotels across the country. And we've had some really out-of-the-box kind of projects to do. And some of our most successful new hires, we've brought on to participate in that sort of thing and just be part of the team. And you know, you're hired for the duration of this thing and we'll see how it goes. And we find out who are the real team players and who are the people who have our three P's of people, planet, and prosperity. Who has that in their DNA? Those are the kind of people we need. There's nothing better than actually going through the process with someone to really get a sense of who they are. From my perspective, it's also always uh, safety. Do they just talk a good game or do they actually enforce it? Or do they want to be buddies with everybody in the project? You know, like little mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. You never really know. I mean, sometimes you can yeah, sniff it but out. Until you're in the thick of something, you don't really know. Now, in the construction world, architectural world, engineering world, I'm kind of lumping them all together. Where do you feel that the concept of quote unquote green goes wrong hmm. when people think about it? Or they start saying, I'm going to pursue this green building as an architect or as a contractor? I think it goes back to something we touched upon earlier, where a lot of people think that green starts with the technology. It starts with the geothermal heating system. It starts with the solar panels. Whereas in reality, and for me, it starts at the opposite end. It starts in the dumb stuff. It starts in the planning of the building on the site. It starts at the building envelope. And you get to the point where you you can design out a lot of that technology that you actually don't need it. And a lot of people think that because green involves all that technology, they think that it has to be more expensive. And it doesn't, we've proven it time and time again. One house that we just finished within the last year in Etobicoke costs no more than any other new house being built on this street in Etobicoke. And yet the house uses 87% less energy. And it's not missing out on anything, you know, and it does have a Tesla parked in the garage. So, so they are powering up a car as well. And it still uses 87% less energy than comparable houses on the street. It didn't cost any more. And because it uses only 13% of the energy of the neighboring houses, they were able to power their house completely with electricity. So they do not burn any fossil fuels in their transportation or their house. So they're able to get very close to being carbon free. And of course we built the house mostly out of wood. So 
do you differentiate between the concept of net zero energy versus net oh, zero yes. carbon? Or are they kind of interlinked with each other in some way, shape, or form? They're closely related. Energy is a reasonably good proxy for carbon. In the early days, we talked about net zero energy buildings, and I didn't know what I know now that it's really talking about carbon. Carbon is the issue. And so I was on the net zero energy bandwagon, and we were driving energy use down. And we realized that that's not necessarily what's important. What's important is to drive the carbon down, and then we can use as much energy as we like. If all of your energy is produced by solar and wind, why reduce energy demand? Other than if you're producing your own energy, you want to reduce energy demand so that you can limit the number of solar panels and wind turbines that you have to buy. There's a logic in there of reducing energy uh, regardless, but the end goal until we learn differently, the end goal has to be driving down carbon. Yeah, the reason I asked that is because I, like you, was on the net zero energy. I'm like, you know what? But what I realized was that was solely because it was something tangible that I could quote unquote package and sell to a prospective client because I can show dollars in, dollars yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. It's also really easy to measure and measure against dollars because you have, we'll take the two bills, you have your hydro bill and your gas bill. There's energy and dollars. There's equations here. It's pretty simple. Carbon's a trickier thing to measure and equate it to dollars. Our federal government is trying to do it. What do you think about that? Well, you know what? Let's not go into politics. <laughs> But I mean, the concepts you have are great, I think, for new subdivisions. Do you think, I'm not going to name the names, but we know of the larger residential, let's say, subdivision manufacturers. <laughs> I don't want to call them builders, let's say manufacturers. Do you think something like this kind of design can be incorporated into a subdivision style, not process oriented, but, you know, like easier kind of thing, or think it's going to be more unique to each situation? Because like you said, it depends where the sun is and the winds are. I don't see any reason why this concept, especially speaking of that house in Etobicoke that I just spoke of, it actually does look like a very nice suburban house that any subdivision, we call them producers? Fabricators? (laughs) Fabricators? <laughs> Manufacturers? Manufacturers? There's a few of them. <laughs> you know, it, looks, it, looks like, it looks like any house that a subdivision manufacturer would be proud to produce a brochure with this on the front of it. And there's no reason why subdivision manufacturers couldn't make these products. I've been involved in a number of day-long design charrettes with Savings by Design, which is these sessions that are put together by a group at Enbridge, and they bring in people that have a thorny problem, and they're usually these subdivision manufacturers, at least the ones I get involved with are, and you know they've been charged to make their design more sustainable. And we come in, myself as an architect and a few building scientists and other people come in and we show them in an afternoon how they could take this thing and make a few changes to it. And it would be 40, 50, 60 percent better. And the pushback that we get almost universally is, well, I can't convince my trades to do that. That's not the way they do this. That's like, wow, that's your whole reason for not doing something 40, 50, 60% better because I can't get my trades to do it. I just shrug my shoulders and walk out of the room disappointed. 
So I think there is a big barrier to change there. I think, I think as you've alluded to earlier, the construction industry and hey, architects are part of it too. So we're all in this together. I think we are the most conservative industry on earth and probably in North America, we're the most conservative of the construction industries on earth here in North America. We do not want to change things. Whereas I look at construction in Germany and Austria, they're building almost everything to the passive house standard now. They're using wood fiber insulation and CLTs or cross-laminated timber panels. Like They're using wood everywhere. Those trades could learn to do it and change. I think it's similar to trades, general contractors, architects that kind of stick to their niche. And for them, it's not necessarily about change or adapting. It's about <laughs> exactly. maintaining the it's status like quo, not to. which you don't have to do. I think that's the struggle I have too, because a lot of times some plumbers or whatever, it's not necessarily in a sustainable environment say, oh, that's not how we do it. I'm like, well, that doesn't mean we can't figure out something a little different that might be better. There's definitely a silver lining here or the, a glimmer of hope maybe is a better way to put it. I have heard that over the next 10 years, 65% of the current construction labor force in Canada will be retiring. Now, and there aren't right now a lot of people in the trade schools to replace them. And that might actually be a good thing because, so we take that reality and then we look at another thing that we have all these buildings, coast to coast to coast in Canada, existing buildings that really need to be retrofit. We really need to make them much more energy efficient. Right now, they are by far the largest contributor to our country's greenhouse gases because most of them burn fossil fuels to heat them. So we have an opportunity here. We also have a number of people in Canada who are employment challenged, new Canadians, and the list goes on and on and on of people who are employment challenged. So, and we're also at the moment, you know, looking like we might be entering into an economic situation, which is comparable to the 1930s. We could have those three realities sitting there simultaneously. And what an amazing opportunity to train a new workforce to do this kind of economic recovery work of retrofitting all these buildings and doing it in ways that we can't get the current construction workforce to do because they've been doing it a certain way for a long enough time and they make good enough money at it. Why change? Well, we might have a situation upon us right now that says, this is why you need to change because this is where the employment is going to be going forward for the foreseeable future. And if we can make that kind of employment that we're probably going to need, reading my crystal ball, I think we're probably going to need some sort of employment stimulus. And why not do something which makes all of our existing buildings better and makes a lighter load on the planet while we're at it? and gives everybody who lives in a house in Canada a better house to live in. You think that we would trend in that direction? I have a feeling that, I mean, everyone loves to speak low about millennials, but 
I find a lot of them are actually a lot more environmentally conscious. Might not be to the degree because they're still figuring themselves out in this world too. But I find they're a lot more environmental conscious, a lot more personal health conscious. So I think I agree with you that there's going to be a change. The question I think is, when are we actually tangibly going to start seeing those changes? Mm -hmm. And I think that if you had asked me that question in January or February of this year, I probably would have given you an answer that would have been something like, we won't see it soon enough for my liking, just because I was seeing how slowly things were evolving. The optimist in me sees this opportunity that we're in the midst of as a catalyst for change. And I think that change could go two ways. I guess there are actually three options. We could return absolutely back to normal, exactly the way it was on March 15th. We could return to that. We could be regressive and we could return to things the way they were much before that. Environmental regulations being made more lax, clawed back, blah, blah, blah. There are a number of forces that want us to return that want us to be regressive, actually, to return even further back. But I also think that there are a number of forces who see this as an opportunity for us to be progressive. And I think that would be that would be great. That's the group of people that I'm throwing my weight in with is the, okay, let's use this opportunity to change, to change to something better. One of the things I was reading on your podcast information sheet right after Build Our Future was building a better, more sustainable future for us all. And I was like, wow, that encapsulates right there what's so important about how we look, what our attitude to the future is. And for me, the best part in that was the last three words, for us all. Let's look at this as a collective. It's funny you mentioned those three options. I'm feeling or I'm thinking I'm falling more on the latter because this podcast is something that I've been thinking about for a year. And I had like the loose ideas, but I was stuck in the rat race, as it were, right? And when the time came, you know, when everything got shut down, I was like, you know what? This is really important to me. Here's an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was trying to figure out a way of imparting what really I'm trying to do. Right. And it's wide ranging. Right. And part of it was more, I feel that people are too often talking about living in the present and preparing for the future. And for me, I kind of switched those two words around. It's more for me preparing in the present to live for the future. You know what I mean? Yeah, nice reframe. To me, that was just something. And I find that people, even when we talk about our past and we're stuck in our ways, no one really goes back to try and understand why we were and why we're changing. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the whole point of this is talk to people like you that are doing something different, talking about different concepts, different technologies out there that, and sometimes looking at the past too, to really understand where we are. We definitely have to look to the past. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big studier of history. I very often look to the past. When we entered into this global pandemic or when it caught up with us here in North America and I had time on my hands, I did a lot of research into the Middle Ages pandemic in Europe, the Black Death. I looked at that and saw parallels to where we are and the panic that people were having in the early days. It seems that panic has subsided now and is becoming other sorts of protests by various people. But all of this comes out of the playbook what's happened in previous pandemics. 
it all plays out more or less the same. So when you understand how something played out previously, you're in a better position to predict how it's going to play out this time. History does have a way of repeating itself. <laughs> it certainly does. And there's a lot of people who don't study history and therefore they think, oh, this is brand new. This has never happened before. There are actually very few things that have never happened before. So I think the only one is, you know, the price of oil per barrel being... Yeah, going negative. Being negative. But <laughs> they're going to pay me to take a barrel of oil. Okay. <laughs> there's a new concept. <laughs> Done so, I know, right? <laughs> so what's next for you? I'm sure, like you said, January, February, you probably had a certain plan for the next year or the next three years. What's your next level? Like, what are you looking to potentially accomplish aside from spreading more awareness and talking more about sustainable? So definitely this opportunity to work from home now is kind of fun. It makes me do things differently and approach things differently than I used to. But it also makes me think, okay, those things that were really important to me and those things I wanted to get accomplished and those ways that I wanted to change people's hearts and minds, are they still important? And I believe they are. I was always looking towards how do I do my part and how do I encourage as many people to do their part to mitigate our climate crisis? Well, I don't think there's anything about this pandemic that has or the potential future economic difficulties. I don't think there's anything about those two things that have in any way changed the importance of mitigating the climate crisis. It might have enhanced it actually, seeing how the earth is healing itself in some in some exactly. respects. And how and how quickly the weather. I mean, I don't I don't think we've changed climate yet. We haven't gone that far. Climate is a much larger thing than weather. But we have clearer skies and clearer water. Well, that's a good start. So you're right. I think a lot of more people are woken up to the fact and maybe this will be for the good. Maybe people will understand the importance of the climate crisis and will also realize that we can change our habits. We changed a lot of habits overnight. The whole world did. And okay, well, now we've proven we can do that. So now when somebody says to me, oh, you know, that involves change and I can't do change. Well, you did. Or oh, I don't do change. I don't it's do like change. I can't, yeah. I've heard I don't do change. I, I don't do change. I don't want to do change. Yeah. It reminds me of that great little meme that goes around on the internet every now and then. The guy's standing up on the on the podium shouting to the crowd, who wants change? And everybody's, rah, yes, yes, I want change. And their fists are in the air and their mouths are all open and their heads are up. And then the next the next frame is, who wants to change? And everybody's looking down at their shoes. Yeah, nope. yeah. what a difference. Yeah. I, I want change, but I don't want to change. There's quite a difference. I think that we're going to see how people's mindsets are changed, but I think it's going to be harder for the other person to come back and say, no, that's too difficult of a change because we, like you said, we've had to force a change right now. And, you know, you could very easily just turn around and say, well, we, we did it. So you could just say you're not interested. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. This will now be my opportunity to call bullshit. <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't often get these opportunities in life, so I'm going to milk this one for all it's worth. Well, it was awesome to have you on. Where can uh, people find you? So people can find me at our website is the easiest place. And actually, I have two of them. So sustainable.to, www.sustainable.to. 
Tango Oscar is one, that's the architecture firm. And then me as an entity, as a speaking and writing entity that talks about the role of architecture in sort of a global context and these changes that we've talked about, this sort of thing that we've talked about here today, Raul, that's a simple Paul Dowsett, D-O-W-S-E-T-T, pauldowsett.com. That's where you can find Fantastic. It. They'll also be able to find the link in. The link's in both, yeah. <laughs> whichever post is in both uh, underneath, you'll, you'll be able to find it. So exactly. thanks so much. It was a fantastic talk. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you so much, Rahul. Well, that was just a ton of information and such valuable knowledge there. I'm sure you feel just like me that the myths surrounding sustainability, they're definitely being dispelled and we're in fact shifting gears, that it's more accessible to us and it is and needs to be more than just a lifestyle choice. Now, I know more than likely your friends and family members have questions about what sustainable construction actually is. Please do share this episode with them so they can get a better understanding of how to implement it in their lives and how accessible it actually can be. Remember, we're available on all platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, among so many others. Sticking with the theme of design and all that goes on behind the scenes before a construction project starts, Hemant Modi from Design TWG sits in the chair next to guide us on an older concept, but perhaps now a more rebranded focus that has been dubbed spatial design. Spatial design.